Welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump and driving here not to work but around town on a very cold Iowa day. And uh, I we are in the middle of chapter four on, what is it on again now? <laughs> it was supposed to be on dependent types. But in fact, it appears that it's really about generalized algebraic data types or GADTs, which are kind of, it's an interesting sort of stepping stone uh, to dependent types. And as I've been arguing as we go along, and I I don't actually program much with GADTs because I'm just using languages that have full dependent types, but a lot, a lot of the use cases that we have that I'm using these dependent types for would probably be pretty adequately served by just GADTs. So anyway, I am pretty much planning to rename this chapter GADTs, even though I'm far from an expert about GADTs. I had a little email conversation there with with, uh, Ryan Scott, who I mentioned last time as the maintainer of the Singletons Library. And um, so thank you, Ryan, if you're listening for writing back about this. And I had an occasion to peek at his blog, and if you want to see somebody who really knows about this kind of thing in Haskell, take a look at Ryan Scott's blog, because my goodness, there's a lot of very um, in-depth look at how things like GADTs work in Haskell. In particular, things like how the type inference works with them, because uh, you know Haskell is trying to have um, as as you know thoroughgoing a type inference as possible, so it's trying to make it make you not have to write very many type annotations if 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 any at all and um certainly if you're just in the core vanilla fragment of uh Haskell or OCaml or related functional programming languages you generally don't have to write any type annotations whatsoever the compiler can always infer um a type for your program if it has one but once we add GADTs to the mix then apparently and I haven't studied this as a, from a research perspective apparently it's it becomes, uh, you know, impossible to to do that in general, and so. But uh, Haskell uh, developers and theoreticians have um, done a pretty amazing job at making it so that it really feels like magically you just don't have to write any type annotations, even with these GADTs. And I haven't, again, I haven't done a ton with them, so I'm, I'm sure at some point you you run into the tricky bits. Um, but they've they've done an admirable job of of making it feel just like programming with any old data type when you're really programming with these indexed data types, where the indices can be used for all kinds of interesting things. We've talked about using ind- indices to types to um, enforce properties of the data. For example, we talked about this binary search tree example where you can statically enforce that any value of type BST lower upper is a binary search tree with data between lower and upper, the given lower and upper bounds. And again, with with the GADTs or with indexed types, but not full dependent types, these bounds, these lower and upper bounds, are going to need to come from some other syntactic category, not the category of your program expressions. And there, that is limiting, in, certainly in some cases. Um, I mean, that's a true limitation, and you, you may suffer from it at some point. But... Uh, but for a lot, a lot of cases, you can just proceed and it's, it's fine. So uh, anyway, what I wanted to talk about today, so we sort of mentioned several examples of kind of using these indices to, for data types. And you know, we basically talked about vectors and binary search trees. And there's many other examples like this that you can come up with. Uh, but 
the I wanted to talk about an interesting some other interesting uses of GADTs. And um, one of them that I'm thinking about, I'm just about to start teaching the undergraduate programming languages class here at the University of Iowa for the semester, and um, where I'm going to be teaching Haskell and also Agda. And I was thinking, you know, thinking about homework assignments, as you are forced to do when preparing a class. The, uh, it's fun. It is kind of fun, but it, you have to, you know, make some good plans, have a good homeworks for people to work on. And I was thinking it would be kind of nice to give examples where you say, well, write a little tiny piece of code that does whatever, but oh, by the way, you know, say you wanted to insist that they only use map and I mean, maybe you want to make them write in something like a point-free style or mostly point-free or something. You want to just say, well, you're only allowed to use these six list manipulating functions and that's it to do whatever the, the you know, computational task is. Well, in, um, actually you could use GADTs for this. Okay. So how would you do that? So in other words, I want to subset my language. I want to say, you're only allowed to use the, this part of the language. You can't use this other stuff. Um, and that's a special case, a very a particular and kind of intriguing special case of an, what they call an EDSL, embedded domain-specific language. Uh, a lot of times, so it, in, I think this is a really great selling point for functional programming languages as they've sort of evolved where where there's a lot of emphasis on having a good data type system and pattern matching on values of these data types and this kind of thing. So you can, since syntactic entities are generally sort of tree structured entities, um, you know, particularly computer languages, right? We have, and natural languages too, for that matter. It's just harder to, much, much harder to model them. But, but for computer languages, we can describe an HTML document or a C program or a CSS uh, file or whatever it is, you can describe the structure of these um, linguistic artifacts as a tree. And this is kind of a, if you're familiar with this, is just so obvious you probably don't even think about it, but it's really kind of amazing observation or insight at some point that, that has arisen that you can model syntactic things as trees. And data types are perfect for encoding trees. That's like almost the. That's kind of what they do. <laughs> they encode tr labeled trees. You know, so uh, so if you want to have, if you have a little language and you want to do some stuff with it, it's very common practice in a language like Haskell uh, that rather than write a sort of separate standalone tool that has to have a parser to parse in your input and convert it to an abstract syntax tree, which you then process, well, you just kind of, you kind of skip the parsing step and you just have a data type describing the syntax of your language and then you can write operations on it. You know, if you're, the kind of like beginning example you have of this sort of thing is like a uh, calculator or an expression interpreter or something like that. Um, but you can, of course, get much, much fancier and do much cooler stuff than that. And the thing where GADTs come into play uh, particularly for this example, so so the example, the embedded domain-specific language that lets you, you know, give these kind of homework problems I was talking about. Well, you're you're embedding the language into itself. Now you're not embedding the full language, but there's no reason you couldn't. 
Uh, in fact, the you know the GHC compiler has to have some data type somewhere in there for expressions, which I read on, I believe it was Ryan Scott's blog or somewhere, is not actually done with the G80T. But anyway, so you have some data type for representing your the expressions of Haskell. Now, in this case, I'm talking about subsetting Haskell. So I don't really want to represent all of Haskell. That would surely be a, a serious undertaking to get all the various complex features um, packed into your data type. And I'm, But no doubt, if you peeked inside GHC, that's what you would find. Uh, but I don't, I don't need to do anything that you know serious. I just want to have some little collection, some tiny subset of the language I want to uh, let students write their some of the pro problems in, you know. And so, how do you do the subsetting? Well, again, you just have a data type for uh, for the this class of the program expression. So you could have, let's say, you're going to do a subset of list operations. So say you want to have append. So the append function, you know, in actual Haskell takes two lists and, you know, concatenates them and gives you the resulting list back. Uh, now here, as an, if I want to have uh, append as part of a embedded domain-specific language, then I'm going to have a data type that has a constructor append. This constructor doesn't do anything. It just represents, you know, in other words, if you call the constructor, all it does is build you a tree. It doesn't actually append anything, you know? But the idea is it's building you a tree that represents this little piece of program that wants to append two lists, okay? So you go through and you do this for all the different operations from your subset of your language, let's say, that you want to have. And you have constructors for each of them in your data type. And now you can write, uh, you can write programs just in that subset by writing some value of that data type. But wait, <laughs> again, think of my use. Think of my use case, my scenario. I want to have students write uh, problems just in a subset of the language. Well, if I just give them a plain old data type where they can call append, where the first argument is a number and the second argument is a um, I don't know, as a function or something, right? <laughs> Basically, they write. They can write completely type incorrect solutions this way which is very unhelpful for them because they're not going to get any feedback that anything is wrong. I guess I could provide them a type checker myself that would tell them, oh, really sorry, you know, this thing you wrote, you know, but I don't want to write a type checker, even for my little subset. That's, that's really a pain. And this is where the cool, a cool use case for GADTs comes in because what you can do is you can make your data type that represents expressions in your subset of Haskell, you can make this data type be indexed by its actual Haskell type. This is a well-known, I mean, something like this is a well-known use of GADTs. You, one of the hello worlds of GADTs is writing a, um, a little evaluator or interpreter for some small language where the type of the result of interpreting an expression is actually an index to the expression type. So you statically, you basically are leveraging the meta language, you know, Haskell is the meta language for this embedded domain-specific language. You're leveraging the meta language's type checker to check types in your object language. Now here, your object language is just Haskell. So there's really, you know, this, this works great. <laughs> and in fact, if your object language is more or less just some, could be seen as some subset of Haskell, uh, and Haskell is a very, you know, it's a general purpose programming language, so you can probably go pretty far with that viewpoint. Uh, if you're writing, you know, programming languages or scripting languages or something like this that don't have terribly different typing from Haskell. 
so then you, if a, somebody tries to write down a value of this data type representing a programming expression, then because the GDT, you know, so you say, I'm writing down my, let's, let's call it expert for embedded expression. I'm writing down an expert of type, uh, an expert, sorry, where the, the expert type itself says it's an expert indexed, it's an expert, sorry, I'm not saying this right. The expert type is like expert list of ints. And that means that this is the representation of a program of type list of ints. And the, so, and then Haskell's type checker is going to check by all, and so you basically embed the typing for all your operations, like the typing for append and all this sort of thing. You embed that uh, as part of the, the definition of the constructors. You say append takes an expert list of A's and another expert list of A's and returns an expert list of A's. Where again, an expert list of A's, that means that's the type for representations of programs of type list of A in Haskell of this subset that you're working with. So, uh, and then using this, uh, you can now do things like write uh, type safe uh, interpreter that given an expert A returns an A. I mean, if, you, if your subset included the possibility of divergence, it would either diverge, which Haskell allows, or it would give you back a value of type A. So expert A, arrow A, is the type of your, you know, simple interpreter. And that's really pretty awesome. And that means, for my sort of use case, students will get static type checking of their programs, even though they actually aren't writing programs directly. They're writing this data, you know, values of this data type, which, and of course, you, you can then run the programs. I mean, it's not enough to just let them type check them. We're going to use Haskell's type checker to type check them. But you can actually write a nice little interpreter of this type, expert A to A. And so people can test that their solutions work. And you can be sure that their solutions are actually written in the subset of Haskell that you want. Because you say, you have to turn in something of type expert, whatever you know Haskell type it was supposed to be, list of lists of ints or something. Um, so that's another interesting use of GADTs, subsetting your meta language, or in general, just embedding some typed domain, some typed language where the type system is close enough to Haskell or essentially a subset of Haskell's type system that you can leverage Haskell's type checker to type check your language. Okay, thanks for listening. That's it for now.